All right, kitchen. Come on in, kitchen. We're all looking at you, Peggy. Peggy Lou. All right, welcome. How we doing? All right, good. All right, man. Fresh off of a session retreat, we got an exciting year planned next year. But now we get to think about an exciting week together, and that's worthless. Um, tomorrow you're going to hear a sermon on the kingdom, and it's interesting. This morning uh, I was working on it because uh, I haven't had a moment to work on it until now. But but one of the things that you'll hear about is testing. It just kind of it comes up in the context of the text, as you'll see. And I was doing a little redemptive historical work on, on testing, so I'm not going to blow that for you now. But what I what you're getting a little foretaste of. But what one of the, the, the themes that's going to come through that practically is how the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, almost throughout redemptive history, is preceded with testings. And um, and and then anecdotally, I, I've noticed over the years of ministry, and uh, I mean it's just almost as predictable as the day coming up that. That the moment uh, the kingdom of God is about to come, testings come. Testings come to those who are the leaders. Testings come to all of us. Uh, in every way, it can come administratively. It can come structurally. It can come emotionally. It can come psychologically. And uh, show sure enough, I wake up this morning, come in here to copy, and the copy machine's busted. And show sure enough, we got all kinds of things going on, uh, you know, here. So, so that's what's uh, that's what's going on, and that's all to say. Um, for in a minute, we're going to pray. But I have one, two, three, four incomplete copies of what I'm going to do. Now, the good news is our brother Aaron is on his way to uh, DocuPrint, and we're going to get some coming back hopefully in about ten or fifteen minutes. So, uh, in the meantime, I want to pass these out, maybe one per table, and I don't know what the heck you're going to do with them. Fight, do whatever you want to do. Um, but there they are. Um, so I apologize for that. So why don't we, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, for the sake of time, so our, our agenda here today is we're going to start with uh, what we're going to call cross-cultural and racial uh, ministry. Uh, multi and cross racial ministry. Uh, you know, it's going to be uh, awkward to some, particularly. You know, if, if you know, we're going to be talking about yous. We're going to be talking about you who live in the hill. We're going to be talking about you who don't live in the hill. And I just want to preface that this could be awkward, especially when when some of us are in the same room, right? And that's why we need to talk. We need to really start to see ourselves as others see us, and vice versa. For those who are on the hill, I need to, to forewarn you that predominantly this has been put together for those of us who don't live in the hill to try to bridge some of the gaps. Um, uh, it, it's not comfortable to hear ourselves discussed in a kind of objective way like that. So I warn you a little bit about that. Um, I warn those of you who are not in the hill that I might push a little button here and there. And, uh, and, and so that's what you've got to do. When you start talking cross-cultural ministry, whether it's going into Africa, whether it's going into uh, one neighborhood of the city to another neighborhood, whether it's going from Hispanic to African-American to Anglo to Asian, there's, 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 there's awkward moments. And that's exactly why we just need to blow it up 
and talk. But we're going to do that as this title that you have in front of you not says. We're going to do that with the gospel. We are going to do that with the gospel. Um, a gospel that, that reminds us, and this is probably the biggest hindrance to this conversation, so I'm saying it right off the bat. What the gospel reminds us is that God is no respecter of persons. The gospel reminds us that we are neither Greek or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, black or white, Hispanic or Anglo. Off we go. Uh, When God sees us, things that matter in our geopolitical world just don't matter to him. He could care less about your degree from a kingdom perspective. You can use that. He could care less about your, your, your trade school. Work with your hands knowledge. And believe me, there's, there's what we call, uh, there's trade school righteousness and there is graduate school righteousness that replaces the righteousness of Christ in the gospel. And so, uh, so it's going to be really important that we all just remember that, that what we're about to do is talk about, as this title to suggest, the gospel and cross-racial and socioeconomic empowerment. And, um, and when we do that, we just start with the, the premise that while we will talk about these socioeconomic, racial aspects of who we are, these are not aspects that you should then assume God has a preference for one way or the other. Let me say that again slowly for those who came in. The gospel is going to teach us, based on what I just quoted, that these qualities that we're going to be describing in terms of an economic situation or an educational situation or whatever those situations are, racial situation, I mean, look around, guys. Look who's in this room. It's going to get awkward if you don't remember the gospel. And so we live in a world that's unfortunately, and particularly a world where power attaches to these geopolitical, social identities. And in a world where power gets associated with these identities, it goes both ways. There's power in being a victim in in our society right now. To be a victim is to have power. There's power in being the oppressor in this society right now. And to be an oppressor is to have power. Very different ways, though. And yet, what we're going to do in the gospel is say, no, we're not going to put a valuative. That means we're not going to put higher value, lower value on a geopolitical, racial, economic identity. We're not going to say, oh, that identity is superior morally. Or that identity is superior morally. We're going to find, my prayer would be, and honestly, this kind of worked out this morning not quite like I was expecting. I'll just tell you that right now, and who's going to be here or not and all that stuff. That's cool. Um, What's going to happen here is, uh, maybe we'll see, but we're going to get to test out the dream of all this. Because eventually, this is the kind of conversation we need to have, all of us in the same room, that we're going to have today. Again, that's part of this testing uh, aspect that's going on. So I'm kind of excited, but a little bit nervous for you. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, just the power of the gospel. Let's start there, Lord.
we know, Lord, that um, moments before the Lord was to come out of his, his messianic closet, that, that your spirit, and the irony of that statement, that your spirit sent Satan to test Jesus. And we know there will be many opportunities of temptation, even in a conversation like this. And so, Father, we pray, even now for this week, we pray for a miracle. <laughs> it's starting to happen. I, again, I prayed for it already and didn't expect this answer necessarily. And so, Lord, we, we see you, we believe in you, we trust you. And now come, Lord Jesus, fill this space with your presence. Give us all humility to hear without taking offense, uh, to consider with an open heart and bringing no bias except our bias for the scripture and, and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I want to start with just an observation about our city. Maybe some of you saw this come out in the New Haven Independent uh, recently. But, it, uh, but, but basically, it, it, the headline says, City has fastest growing income inequality in America. Can you believe that? That's where we live. Quote, we landed at the top, is how the article begins. Numero uno, in a ranking of how fast the income inequality gap has widened since the Great Recession. We live in a state that boasts of being the richest state in America. And we have a state that boasts of being one of the poorest in our cities. We are, we are engaging something here with Impact Week that's bigger than maybe you might think. Um, just to give you a couple of stats, um, ranking metro areas, falling incomes at the bottom help drive inequality increase in cities and metro areas. Uh, number one was... These are metro areas, Bridgeport, number two, New Orleans, number three, San Francisco, number four, Sacramento, number five, Boston, six, Stockton, seven, Albuquerque, eight, New Haven, nine, Milwaukee. These are metropolitan, so those involve disparity within the, the metropolitan region, not just the, the city proper, if you will. So, for instance, New Haven would include um, Milford and places like that. Um, Milwaukee, and then Orlando. But then when you look at it in terms of the, uh, the, the ratio of change, so we're already number six in disparity, but, the, 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 but when you look at the speed of change, the disparity, the widening gap that we hear about all the time, New Haven, number one, New Orleans, number two, Boise State, three, and off it goes. And so these are... Uh, it raises the question then uh, for us who live in this world, um, many of us who live within two miles distance and a disparity in this room of hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe of annual income. And so think about that. I mean, just let that, take a deep breath and just let that sink in a little bit. That you're right now even sitting in a room, much like our city, where the disparity of income is huge. What 
does that mean for the kingdom of God? How do we think about that? And how do we talk to each other? How do we live with each other? How do we bridge the gap, if you will? And I will tell you that the gap between poverty and wealth is a much more difficult gap to overcome than the gap of just pure race, one race to another. And I won't go through all the, the, the things here, but, but uh, it's very common on a given Sunday to be a multiracial service. It's very uncommon on Sunday, almost practically never, to be a multi-economic service. And so you've got to start thinking like that. Now, to get us started, then, I'm going to start on the economic side of this. And I'm going to spend most of our time there, actually. And to help us just kind of get into the world, I'm going to read, and you know I like this book. Theirs is the Kingdom. Let me find it. It's Christmas again, 22. So listen to this very one short, one-page story. See what you think. Christmas again. Damn. His words are barely audible, but his wife knows his feeling very well. She sees the hurt come into his eyes when the kids come home from school, talking about what they want for Christmas. It is the same expression she sees on the faces of other unemployed fathers around the house housing project. She knows this year will be no different from last. All her husband's hustle, his day labor jobs, his pickup work, will not be enough to put presents under a tree. They will do well to keep the heat on. His confident, promising deceptions allow the children the luxury of their dreams a while longer. She will cover for him again because she knows he is a good man. His lies are really his wishes. His flawed attempts to let his children know what the older ones know, but never admit the gifts are not from daddy. He will not go with her to stand in the free toy lines with all the others. He cannot bring himself to do it. It is too stark a reminder of his own impotence. And if their home is blessed again this year with a visit from a Christmas family bearing food and beautifully wrapped presents for the kids, he will stay in the bedroom until they are gone. He will leave the smiling and the graciousness to his wife. His joy for the children will be genuine. But so is the heavy ache in his stomach. As his image of himself as a provider is dealt yet another blow. Christmas. That wonderful, awful time. When giving hearts glow warm and bright while fading embers of a poor man's pride are doused black. Bob Lufton um, wrote this book, Theirs is the Kingdom. And these are every story here are stories that come from real live people, real live events. Um, I'm pretty sure I know this family um, when I worked with him and who this man is. But I want you to think about, uh, what did you hear? What is happening here? Talk to me. Okay, there's a pro- there, what, where, where are you? I won't be here. 
Okay. I said embarrassment and pride. Okay, embarrassment, but it, as related to a hit on his pride. What you mean by okay? That's right. Other thoughts. They don't know the real meaning of Christmas. And what? It, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Because it's about the greatest. It is a doctor gospel, but I want to particularly focus on what's happening to this man. Okay. That's good, though. But you're Sorry. right. No, it's not apology. It's just, I was saying we're going. I love Jesus. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Good intentions that hurt deeply. Good. Good intentions. Then what's motivating those good intentions? What do you think's happening there? Why? What's What's behind the givers for a minute? Love, mercy, compassion. Love, mercy, compassion. Is that how the husband feels it? That's not where the good intentions. But is that how the husband? Oh, yeah. So the answer is no. Now, what? Let's get behind the giver. What? What's love, compassion? That's right. Why don't they see that? Why do you think they're they, they're unaware of how destructive their gift is? Because they don't know the difference between humility and humiliation. Okay. They have a totally different context. I don't think they really know That's the right. family. That's right. That's the first line right there. They don't know this family. They don't know, I don't know, is John, let's say, Billy Bob, Sally. Or, no, I'm talking about men. So I can't say Sally. <laughs> so what, what they don't know, first of all, so there's no presence other than at a once or twice time of year. What else? That begs for something that doesn't exist, obviously. Yeah. It's taught down. It's it's from the top. It's from the top down, okay. Those who have condescending to those who do not have, at least materially speaking. We're gonna see they have other things. They're not really walking with them. They're not walking with them. Alright, alright. And of course and no one, in this case, until Bob Lepton stepped in, which I know he did, it's one of the cardinal rules that this would never happen again. But uh, that's right. Uh, what else? Yeah. Nobody knows how hard he's tried to get a job, mm-hmm. to get a better job, to pick up, pick up jobs. Um, he's the only one that knows that. Okay. So we obviously don't know. It doesn't. What we see is not what we might really need to see. About his, his life. Notice he lies. He connives. But we see that as evil, or do we see that as a broken man? It's interesting how did you hear how it described his lies in this in this little essay? The lies about what he can do, the lies about what he he wants for their what's gonna happen for their kids, blah blah blah. Did it, did you, anybody catch that? What was it called? It's his wishes. It's it's wanting desperately for his desire, his wishes to be a rally and, and to speak of that reality. Now, I, I know that um, by far, I think, uh, the number, and I, I will say this anecdotally, but I think it's also proven uh, statistically, and, and those of you who live in the Hill know this very well, that, that by far the, the, the people who are hit most in terms of the pride are the young men of our cities. And you hear how the, the wife lovingly tries to cover for him, lovingly tries to, you know, but at the same time, lovingly wants her children to have the gifts. 
What an awkward situation some people are being put into. I love my children. I want to see those glowing eyes on Christmas with happy guests. I love my husband. I hate to see that he is, he is put down. It's a really tough situation. Um, what is poverty here? Think about that. What is poverty that is in this story? How would you define poverty? It seems to me he's lacking more than just a job and money, though. I mean, okay. he's lacking, he's isolated. I mean, it's mm-hmm. hard for anybody to admit they need something. Well, you said a lot right there, okay? So, he's isolated. Yep. Poverty is, is the absence of meaningful, productive relationships. He's isolated somehow. Isolated from opportunities, isolated from people, etc. Um, so poverty, if you look at, at the, the man, is isolation. Anything else in relation to the man? What's poverty look like for him? What's poverty here? How is poverty defined by the story in the man's life? Go ahead. Lack of hope. Okay, there you go. Lack of hope, lack of pride, lack of self-image, lack of worth. That's much deeper. How would that, how do you think that would domino effect in terms of the way he lives his life? I mean, many of you suffered self-esteem, I know, with, and ironically, that's not a problem that's rich or poor, believe it or not. You know, the, the overachiever is a driven by an under view of yourself. The fear, the mental illnesses, psychological trials you see in the wealthy community is rooted in a lack of meaningful identity and their identity is at stake for how their children get, how their children do, their identity they're poor in identity too they're poor in image too ironically so I want you to see something, but it's a very different environment, there's a so now how we define poverty. So if you think of poverty, the husband is lacking poverty in the way that many who are seeking counsel in the rich community is lacking poverty, but in a radically different context. His context is also a poverty of what? What else is, what are the children lacking? How does the story describe the children's poverty? Stuff. Do I hear stuff? Okay, I don't think stuff. They lack stuff. A poverty of material things. There's a lack. There's a material poverty. Whereas with the husband, it's an emotional or what I'd say is a psychological or identity poverty. Okay, um, that's right. Now again, I want to talk about the givers. Just imagine for a moment what motivates them. It, it could be just pure. Love. And I'm sure it's there. I suspect part of the blindness, and I'm talking about that individual, but the blindness of our culture that resorts to Toys for Tots kinds of programs where once a year we can kind of agree to go buy a present at the store while I'm buying my other kids' presents and take it down to the church and put it in the trailer knowing it to be delivered down to a place that doesn't have toys, yes, well-meaning, but what does that do to that person who is wealthy, do you think? 
Okay, keep talking. Makes them feel better. Makes them feel better. You mean, so, what's their poverty, Barbara? Nope. What's their poverty that makes them feel better? What do you, what's the poverty then? What are they lacking if they're needing to be feeling better? I guess they feel that they need to help out. And why do you think they do that? What do you think the wealthier feel? I heard a lot. Guilt. That they're not doing, who, who was that? Where? That they're not doing enough. So there's a guilt. Now, you know, there's an interesting thing. That creates what we call the dutiful Christian. The dutiful Christian is not the Christian who's filled with the love of someone and, and is with great energy and excitement serving them. The dutiful Christian is the person who is filled with guilt, who is dutifully going to church, dutifully doing it. But here's the question. The question they're asking is, what, how much do I need to give so that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I won't feel guilty anymore? That's what's motivating how, how much do I want to get involved here? Love says, I want the relational connection. I want the presence. So there's a poverty of material things over here. There's a poverty of self-righteousness. And I don't mean that, and that's how we get our righteousness. I mean a sense of righteousness about oneself. There's a sense of guilt. There's a lot, a lot of guilt and a lot of psychological poverty that comes with guilt for those who are wealthy. And we have a major thing brewing here. Guilt-driven people seeking to get rid of the guilt. And again, this is generalities. And I told you I'd be poking it all. I mean, well, I'm just poking two eyes out at the same time. Hope you felt it. <laughs> there it goes. I just did it. You know? And so, we need to kind of have a reorientation. I'm still waiting for those handouts, but that's all right. We're going to go. So, what is poverty? Let's talk about poverty a little bit. Certainly, uh, the scripture speaks of different causes. You could speak of a poverty of, of just this, a material poverty, but as, as a result of, and I'm just talking about material poverty right now. What is material poverty? Let's start at that kind of a cheat sheet level. Well, one is just sin. There's no doubt about it. You know, the passage about the ant and things of that nature. That there's a, you could say, well, there's laziness. You could say there's there's a, a lack of moral judgment and making mistakes. You know, you go out, you you drive your car drunk, and you get DOI. They take your car away, and now you can't get to the work, and the domino effect begins. Uh, you get incarcerated. There's a poverty of sin, as in sin can create material poverty. We got that. But that's the one that most of us, if you're not materially poor, will typically uh, target. Oh boy, see this is an example. There we go. Make sure I got all my stuff. Oh boy, that's what I was hoping for. Anybody have a number two on their sheet? (laughs) I need a number two. I might have to pull on my computer real quick. The three, doesn't it? All right, that's what I meant. I thought that was a good one. Oppressed, overwhelmingly, the most broken of Yeah, 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 I, I got it. You're missing number two, aren't you? So page number two. Yes, page number two. So you all just have to bear with me. We'll get all this stuff to you. So, uh, so that's one. Um, number two, uh, there is oppression, like you said. 
Um, by the way, this is overwhelmingly the most often spoken in Scripture. By the way, when you get this, you're going to get a lot of uh, in, like Scripture references for this. So I'm just not going to take the time to do it. Do you want to project it? Um, no. <laughs> so the second one is what I call uh, oppression. Overwhelmingly the most spoken of in Scripture. Now that, that means that either in a systemic, social way, there are factors that oppress wealth formation in, in a community. That, that render it difficult. It could be oppression related to race. It could be oppression related to the haves and the have-nots. Redistribute those who have and their capacity to distribute wealth. Amos talks a lot about that. You think of the Jubilee Laws and, and an attempt every 40 years to redistribute the wealth in order to push back against the way in which power has the money is power, and power has the advantage of making money in a way that can oppress another culture. That's what we call systemic sort of, of poverty. And again, um, that can come in two forms. Again, this is the idea, you know, you shall not cheat in measuring length, weight, or quality. You shall have honest balances, honest weights, an honest effa, and an honest hen, and I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is part of the, the explication of what it means to love your neighbor as your, you know, in that passage. And do not steal. It's actually under the title, Do Not Steal. Honest balances and scales are the Lord's. All the weights and the bag are his work. In that day and age, there was a, there was a scale system. But this gets, this gets algorithmed, if you will, in the modern America. You know, they're individual issues. Um, you know, one thing we want to be careful of. So I've said that there's this systemic kind of oppression that the Scripture talks about. But it also talks about individual, personal, one, us, and our behaviors. And here's the danger. We live in a very politicized culture. And in that politicized culture, systemic causes of poverty tend to be, uh, you know, the way to go. And the one way that I think many will seek to feel and, and, and deal with their guilt is they get involved in a cause against systemic poverty. It's quite popular right now. Jacques Ellul, a French uh, theologian, sociologist, who wrote the book Money and Power, uh, into that context says this, for then, I ultimately ask no more than to believe the system builder. You see what they're doing? The person like that saying, oh, I just, it's all about the system builder. It is so convenient, he says. I don't have to think about what I do. I don't have to try to use my money better, to covet less, to quit stealing. It's not my fault. All I have to do is campaign for socialism or conservatism. He went both ways. He's talking out of Europe. You know, you'd call it what? You know, for right wing, left wing, whatever you want to call it. And as soon as society's problems are solved, I will be just and virtuous. Effortlessly. My money problem will take care of itself. And then he goes on to say, money has become way too impersonal. Because it increasingly seems as if the use of money is not an individual act. Does not signify personal control 
but instead results from distant and complex interactions of which our acts are merely echoes. No longer is there any real relation between an individual and his money, because his money is abstract and impersonal. Consequently, moral problems concerning money no longer seem to exist. So there is some sin. There's a lot of sin. That's, that was you know, category number one, cause of poverty. Sin that can go from the person who is poor and the consequences of sinful activity and actions or laziness or whatever, or sins on the part of those who are the rich and ways in which they can then also contribute through the, 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 the systemic uh, things they vote for and do and how they even privately, how much do they covet and hoard. But then there's also the providential issue, number two. What I mean by that is, let's just be frank, God ultimately is sovereign. Job 9, 12 says it this way, Behold, the Lord taketh away, who can hinder him? Who will say to him, what are you doing? There is a, an economy in the divine mind of God that only God understands, and it's a mystery. It doesn't at all. If, you're, if you understand sovereignty and free will, you should know it never excuses the exercise of free will sinfully. And there will be accountability. And yet, on the other hand, we acknowledge that God giveth and taketh away. And there is a purposefulness. Thank you, brother. You didn't get it. You can go ahead and start distributing if you wouldn't mind. Um, and there's a purposefulness to everything God does. Now, it's very interesting that Paul sort of gets on this, by the way, and I said this a lot. In 1 Corinthians 10, I mean in 8, Paul makes this amazing moment while he's trying to, to collect funds from Corinth to give to the poor church of Jerusalem. And he says this about how God distributes. How there are some who have too much, and he attributes it to God giving them too much, and there are some who have too little, and he attributes to God giving them too little. And then he says, that therefore, through your giving, those who have too little will have enough, and those who have too much will not have too much. Now, Read between the lines, because this is getting back to our earlier conversation. What would God, what at least there was one aspect of what God has in mind by the inequality of wealth? What do you think God is doing with that? Or could do with it? It creates a dependence. Now here's the problem, though. For those who are materially wealthy, or those who are materially poor, living in a materialistic world, the only poverty they measure is material. I'm walking this so slow, I hope you're just thinking about every word here. Think about what just happened. So poverty is defined only materially. But what we just discovered is that Paul's defining poverty relationally. Devising a world that needs one another. I just said earlier that the wealthy are suffering a poverty no less but of different type than the 
poor. But see, now I can't even use that word poor. The materially wealthy poor person lacks the poverty of what again? Righteousness. Self-identity. Guilt. Moral, moral justification, if you will. In a world that's always materialistic. That's just materialistic, by the way, ironically. Two seconds. And then the other side is that those who are materially poor are lacking what? Power. Lacking hope. Lacking relationship. And here's Paul saying, we got this system here in God's providence that forces those to come together. One of the things we're going to do in a minute, because I'm doubtly speaking to those of you who are of the CPC 135 congregation in this, and what we're going to do in a minute, is I'm going to remind us of the wealth that God attributes to those who are materially poor. And he's going to, and I'm going to remind you, and I'm doing it now, so if I don't know now, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, that in Isaiah 58, yeah, it's 58, 48, 58, can't remember. Um, get those two because they're both significant in 58, 48, 58, you know what I'm saying. And so, God actually tells Israel, you want revival? And he's speaking to a wealthy congregation. You want revival? You need the poor in your life. And poor people, materially, you want revival? You need rich people in your life. Can I also hear an amen? Amen. All right. We need each other. There's ethics that come with these different types of poverty. Some bad ethics, some good ethics on both sides. There's ethics that come out in this kind of poverty. There's ethics that the materially poor need. There's ethics that the materially rich need from the other. That's what Isaiah, so 48, 58, I know you're out there checking, aren't you? That, they, they, they would, yeah, it's 58, that's what I thought. So we'll look at it in a minute. If you found the actual passage that does that. You want to read it? Just a short part? Okay, well, if you do. And so, this is, this is what we got to start thinking about. And I'm going to bias it on pushing the other type of poverties. If you think about what poverty is, um, I'm reading here uh, from, from When Helping Hurts by Fickert. Poverty is not simply an academic exercise for the way we define poverty. Either implicitly or explicitly, it plays a major role in determining the solutions we use in our attempts to alleviate that poverty. If we believe the poverty primary cause of poverty is, say, a lack of knowledge, then we believe the answer to poverty is education. If we believe that a lack of uh, that the cause of poverty is a oppression by powerful people or systems then we're going to work for social justice. If we believe that the personal sins of the poor, materially, or let's say, in this case it's written more for the wealthy serving the poor, but you could say the opposite, or the wealthy, the personal sins of the wealthy are the cause of their respective poverties, then we're going to evangelize and disciple the materially poor and the materially wealthy, or let's say the psychologically poor. If we think it's a lack of material resources, living in a materialistic world, that's what we think of life. We need a lot more Platonism here. We need a lot more. We need to rethink. Gosh, there's whole philosophical systems that would laugh at us right now that we put so much worth on material things. 
But if it is a lack of material resources or the, the abundance of material resources and power that comes with it that's causing our respective poverties, then we give more or less material resources. And I hear both ways. You know, it's interesting, just to get it out of the closet here, that there's never a time that I can find in all of Scripture where the wealthy are, are, call, are accused of being sinful because they're wealthy. Most often than not, it's, 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 it's talked of as, as, as a blessing of God. It's what you do with the wealth. It's what the wealth does. The warnings come and they're legion how hard it is for material wealth, given our temporalness of materiality in this world, how hard it is to be wealthy and to enter into the kingdom of God. Or to have spiritual health. There are passages like that. I think of Timothy. We'll talk about it later. Woe to you who desire to get wealth. See, the difference between desiring to get wealth for wealth's sake and working hard at what you believe is a good thing to do, and it gets you wealth. Those are two very different motives right there. You know, do you want me to say that again? Yes. It's one thing to say, my goal in life is to be wealthy, and then you just find whatever you got to do to get wealthy. Now your identity is in your material wealth, etc. Versus doing something that's good for the common good, it's something that's a noble and good thing to do, but it, it produces great fruit of wealth, materially. Those are very different things. And Timothy speaks of that. And so what we just saw there is that poverty and how we define it is going to define how we meet it. And what I'm trying to do is debunk that poverty is nothing but material. What's the ultimate need? What's the ultimate poverty we, the gospel would say? What is it? Okay, faith. It's related to getting it. That's right. The ultimate poverty is our poverty of God, relationally. That we have been the original sin, that we have rejected God, and we have therefore lost our image. Think about that. Being the image of God is a mirror image. You take God away, what happens to our image now? Tell me. That's right, it's gone. Think about that. James says, we, those of us who do this, it's like we look in a mirror and, and then we walk away and we forget who we are. And that's, the, that's what brings into our lives this self-loathing. And it goes in both directions. The husband that we read about lacks self-image. But if that self-image is being derived from wealth, <laughs> that is going to be one of the most poor, emotionally, people you'll meet. Because our true and lasting image comes by a restored relationship with God, where we look at God and behold Him, and in doing so, we see from Him who we are. Calvin did a masterful thing, if you know John Calvin is his in this great, luminous description of the fullness of our theology and the fullness of our beliefs, it is not accidental that he started it with this observation. 
that to know God, we must know ourselves, but to know ourselves is to know God. Mm-hmm. And he didn't mean in that a narcissistic way. He meant in that that there is, and the whole of this book, it's brilliant. He's, he's truly, you could describe John Calvin as one of the early and true humanists, but he's a Christian humanist. Because so much of his focus, it's, people, it's a Calvin that people have lost, is on the restoration of humanity. The restoration of the image of God, of hope. This is so powerful. So here's what I want to do. I want to just to think about how the ethics of poverty are different. And then I'm going to ask you to evaluate those ethics a little bit in light of Scripture. And again, it's meant to kind of reconcile us a little bit. So the ethics of poverty considered, and you should have all this, it's on page three now. First of all, poverty, uh, 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 the ethics of what we'd call imagelessness or hopelessness. What do you do? You don't trust the world. You're not hopeful about this life. What kind of hymns are you going to sing, by the way, in church? Oh, you can talk a lot about the by and by. Go look at the great gospel hymns. Very heaven-focused. Is the scripture heaven-focused? Yes or no? Now and not yet. Has the kingdom come now? Come on, yeah. Do you get two sides of your mouth? I don't do it. Yes, no. That's what the scripture teaches. Now, who do you think has a over-realized eschatology in the present age? Anybody? The rich. The kingdom is now. Who has a under-realized eschatology that is related to the kingdom of God now? As in, I don't think it's come at all. Who? The materially. Remember, I keep saying materially. I want you to learn to do that. We're going we're gonna to break this thinking that there is only one kind of poverty. That's materialism. The desert. Well, anyone who suffers. Anybody who suffers. Suffer. Suffering. Very good. Very good. That's true. And it can come into this right. I like that. You just corrected my materialism right there. See that? (laughs) And so there's a hopelessness. If you're spiritualizing it, one's going to want to think, not have a lot of confidence in God's power in this world. There's going to be a cynicism about this world. I, for two years, ran a, a pick. Program, private industry council program in Atlanta, Georgia, for the the the, the community of, of Techwood, which is a the first housing projects community in America. Very very poor, and I can tell you right now, I see names and people. I love them still to this day. And they, I think, Frank loved me. I don't know. And we developed this program for the high school kids. And we went around to the city, through all the churches that were mostly around the city, and we went and said, hey, we need businesses who would be willing to give intern, summer internships to kids that are in the city. And it's going to have a holistic thing. We do a Bible study more, and we take them to these jobs. Da, 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 da. I mean, going through all the red tape, you can't believe the red tape that you got to go through to do all this stuff. That's part of the systemic oppression right there that we're going to have to target. And uh, we go pick them up at the, on Friday, and we get in the car, and, and, um, and we would come back, and We'd open up the bus door, and kids would pop out, dissipate fast. Next day, I come to the the, to the tech with everybody's rock fishing poles. 
Do you know Atlanta, Georgia, very well? There's not even a creek downtown. I'm like, what's going on here? And why did you just take your money and do that? You worked hard for this money. Two things. Image. Well, that's what we think that rich kids have. I mean, they didn't say it like that, but that's just... Why are you buying that watch? Why are you supporting you buy that car? Because when the rich people come downtown, that's what I see they have. They didn't say that, though. It, you heard it in how they answered the question. You're thinking, they're crazy. Bad, bad ethics. We go home, the, maybe the wealthy, with a little self-right one. Of course they're poor. They don't do first things first. Because why? They didn't understand that what's going on with this kid is what? Image. Worth. Hopefulness. And it goes back way on the other side too. Just different kinds of things. So if you have a ethic of hopelessness and lack of image and lack of therefore confidence in the kingdom of God in this life, what are you going to do? Are you going to preserve and save and invest? Because you believe in the future in this life? No, you're going to use and spend quickly. That same kid, his name was Nick. Nick. Nate, I took him home. His grandfather was sitting outside. I said, sir, maybe you could help me out a little bit. You know, he, 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 uh, he's, he's, he, you know, let's talk about your son, you know, about your grandson, but he's really his father, about, you know, working with this money thing. So let me tell you something, son. He's probably about 90 years old. Your world don't work for our world. He brings that money home. His mom is going to take it. And he literally said, and Uncle Joe, incarcerated, wouldn't go try to get him out of jail. That was the exact story. I walked away, dejected. I had no answer. What's more, what's more kingdom-like? Is it to share and care for those who are in need? even if the sea of need is so vast that every dime would never even make a dent? Or is it too hard to get something out of it right now? What we would want is a both and, not the hoard part. <laughs> so look, think about this. Ethics of hopelessness, you preserve, you save, you invest. You've got a couch? By the way, this is a true story. you got a couch? What are you going to do with it, some of you? Bring it home, you got some kids, you're going to put plastic on it. Don't jump on the couch. All right? Something like that? All right? You know, it was great. Nate went over to one of your houses. I think it was Maxine is your house. And man, there was a big dance in the house. Remember that, Maxine? Brad, you guys were using it. Y'all were using it. I mean, you know, everything's going to be used. Man, this is now. Let's, let me, let's put the couch in the front yard and do a trampoline. That, that works. Now, there's something going on here. A willingness. Those who have not tend to be, it's easier to give. I remember when we went over there the first day, we just got married. This is the kind of husband I am. I took my wife to their city for a summer uh, uh, working downtown. First day, she got her purse stolen. It was, I can tell you all kinds of funny, crazy stories about that. But, but like the first day at camp, uh, the little girls came up to Lisa and said, here you 
you, you want my pencil? I got a good pencil. Now, what's the temptation, by the way? Oh, no, no, no. You need that pencil. I got tons of pencils. Now, I don't even know what she did, so this is bigger than my wife. But if you did that, you made a huge mistake. Huge. Does she need the pencil more than she needs to give you that pencil? Do you think? What did the husband need? See, these are the things that we're going to have to start thinking about. Managing time. Oh, boy. It's kind of a joke, isn't it, Chip? Over here... Shut your ears, Alan. You're my elder. <laughs> I get pissed at all the time because our calendar ain't going out far enough. I mean, for the last three years, any thoughts me? Anything been going out in about a year? Something like that, since you've been here at least. Okay. We have been doing a little bit of job lately, so I'll give her that credit. And, hey, hey, Jeff, put this thing on. Where's What calendar are we talking about, Preston? We'll go out, we'll, we'll walk the streets, we'll be, I don't know how, it all happens. It's just going to happen. But where, where's all these sign-ups in the camp in Hill? Maybe at best in your church, right? When are we going to sign up? Oh, come on, not the same day of the camp. No one does that, Chip. And honestly, every camp my kid was involved with was at least a two-month what is it? You're in all that kind of... What do you think? Two, three? What, what, when does he got to get those kids in those kids? It depends what it is. See, you're so honest. You can't even be generalist like a, a preacher does. We're all generalists. Longer. Longer. Okay, there you go. Eight months. Eight months. Yes, exactly. You want to start getting ready to go to college? I mean, it, it, it takes... A, 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 it takes... The whole system is rigged for those who have an over-realized eschatology. That's that's Greek. That's that's speak for believing that the kingdom of God is now, and the ethic that comes with that about how we use our time. That's why we've got Joanne Donovan, who's got the ethic of now, trying to help those who don't have the ethic of now. And as we're going to see in a minute, the ethics who don't have now, they're your only hope. You're their only hope, rich person. To be set free from the oppression of your ethic of not having enough, not yet. You see, this is what's going to happen. What about uh, postponed gratification? I've told this story before, a true story. An experiment was done, went to the suburbs, Dunwoody, know Atlanta, went to a church there and said, okay, we're going to give you an ice cream cone right now. You're coming back tomorrow, right? Yeah. I tell you what, you wait till tomorrow and you're going to have the biggest Sunday you've ever had in your life. You can make it yourself. Almost, I think unanimously. I wait for tomorrow. Their parents did well. Postponed that gratification. We went to the hill. Now. No debate. Now. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. This is rooted in an ethic of hopelessness or hopefulness about this life. This is rooted in an ethic of self-image and empowerment. What are we going to target? Upward mobility? 
concede to the present condition. This group says, where's your spirit? Fight. This one over says, work for the future. Ah, that grandfather. I've seen it. Now, hundreds of times, the young man who goes to grammar school and he comes home with the bright eyes, I can do whatever I want to do, Daddy. They tell me that every day in school. It broke my heart to come back a couple of years later and see Malcolm, a kid that could rap like nobody had ever seen. He would... I learned that from him, honestly. And... Um, and he would rap a basketball game. I mean, literally, this is going live. This kid's brain was fast. And he had an amazing religious experience at the end of one of our camps a year before. Next year, I came back, and his eyes were glazed. I went up and found him where you're not supposed to be. And everybody told me that. And he came up to me quick and said, you've got to get out of here. He said, man, if, I'm, if they see me and talk to me, man, I'm, I'm dead. What's going on, man? You know, man, you know. There's only one way around here. And he's now working with the drugs. That old man was right. That's not my dream. And I don't want my kid to be broken. Quit telling him. He's resigned himself to upper mobility. Well, you see the list. One is individualistic. It's all about pulling oneself up by the bootstraps. The other is communalistic. It's all about depending on one another. The family. The family is huge. And I don't mean the nuclear individualistic family. I mean the extended family, but more importantly, I mean the gang. It's huge. You got my back. Nuclear family, extended family, mobile, non-transient. You know, <laughs> the world, for those who are in one ethic, is probably about a three-mile radius. I mean, even Trumbull, Connecticut, I, I don't want there, right? I bet that felt real far away. Our world, other world, Spain is short distance. This is a big different world. Now, here's some questions I need to ask. It's, we started 15 minutes late, by the way. I'm going I'm to, as the master of ceremonies, I'm going to go ahead and use it. Um, four questions for those who want to minister to the poor. Now, again, uh oh, I just did it again. I forgot to put the qualifier. Am I willing to reconsider the moral high ground of my achiever values? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Repentance. Faith. Believe in the gospel, what true identity is, what true wealth is. Repent. Maybe the poor will help you do this if you're the material poor. I mean, think about the ethics we just reviewed. Who is most prepared to consider the kingdom of God as good news when they read these verses? 
Take no thought for tomorrow. Ow, says the pecs, right? <laughs> Ow, man. Ow, gosh. I spent my whole life, life worrying about tomorrow. There's some others who say, Phew, makes me feel a little better. Hmm. Don't lay up treasures on earth. All we do is save. I know what you're thinking. Don't, don't, don't you think I don't know what you're thinking. It's not an either or, is it? I'm just pushing on one side right now. Because I want both a realized eschatology or an under-realized eschatology, and an over-realized eschatology. I want an overview of the kingdom of God now. I want an underview of the kingdom of God now to come together in a holistic way, but rooted in the new image that you have in yourself of God, from God and his image in you through the gospel. That's where this has got to go. But I'm just pushing on one side right now. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Woe to the rich man. But by the way, there's a lot of woes to the poor person. Woe to the rich man. Dang. Screwed that one up too. Harder for the rich man. Ooh, I don't like that one either. You get it. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go such and such a town, spend a year there, and go do business and make money. Yet you do not even know that tomorrow will bring. That grandfather's trying to tell me something. You got a little too much confidence in the, in tomorrow, Pastor. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We were talking about that last night, weren't we? I won't go through the rest of these Proverbs. Um, so what are we going to do? I think you probably know, and I hope I've spent some time. I have to skip some of the rest. Am I willing to get beyond finger pointing and embrace the opportunity for kingdom building? I'm going to ask that of those who would consider themselves materially poor. Can you stop pointing the finger at the wealthy? Can you see that maybe they are doing some good things with their work and that God has blessed them with their wealth? To the wealthy, can I talk to you for a minute? Can I say to you, quit pointing your finger at the poor and blaming them for their material poverty? Can we take responsibility for our greed and the way we've distributed our assets systemically and personally? It's a big issue, I know. But it's there. In the gospel, in this church, no more pointing fingers. I can give you a lot of ism words for that. Victimization, minoritarianism, majoritarianism, achieverism. They point their fingers like this, and that's what the world does, church. That's what the world does. So they make each other feel less guilty and more righteous. Because the problems of the world are their fault. There is a class of religious people in the Gospels that kind of sound like that. Anybody know who they are? Pharisees, there it is. And it is right in both camps right now. The more politicized, the worse it gets. Am I willing to rediscover the Gospel for myself and then for others? I want you, if you could, you can go online and do it. There may be some there. If you don't have the money, just take it. There's the kingdom, celebrating the gospel in our memory. This is written to the materially wealthy to help understand more of the materially poor, but not 
in order to elevate the poor in any way, but to reconsider our values. And in that, you'll know everything you know about cross-cultural, cross-economic cultural reconciliation. You'll know everything you need to know through a story, story after story. If you look down, we've some of us have looked at this before. Um, four levels of giving. This talk has rethought that, if you've been following this. The highest form of giving, this is an old proverb, ancient Hebrew wisdom, is to provide a job for one in need without the knowledge that you provided it. Next, provide work for one in need who knows you provided it. Next, give an anonymous gift to meet the immediate need. Lowest, and to be avoided at all times, no matter what, give a poor person a gift with his full knowledge that you are the donor. Like that a gift that he couldn't, that he or another way couldn't give it. In other words, it's very interesting. It's just a proverb. I think it can be tweaked. But what we're looking for here is how do you empower people? And again, I give you some illustrations from Bob Lupton's book. Um, I want you to go down to uh, this old idea of are we willing to rethink charity? Um, we make a distinction between relief, rehabilitation, and development towards empowerment. One of the things we're going to do, Chip and I talked about it, is we're going to stop doing anyone for anything for anyone that they can't do for themselves. And if they can't do it all by themselves, we want them to do it with us. Now, the uh, Habitat for Humanity calls that what? Sweat equity. They were right. That's one of the conditions. You know, I, <laughs> I had the privilege of, of starting Habitat in Athens, Georgia, and, and with some other people. And so I got kind of deeply rooted in some of their stuff. And I mean, that is the number one. If you, anybody know Habitat and been involved in their little values, that's their number one value that used to, used to be. Number one, requires sweat equity. I came in as a little self-righteous young Christian and thought, that's mean. Now, I know that that was Grace. The biggest mistake that the North American churches make, by far, is applying relief in situations when rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. Avoiding the poison of paternalism or maternalism. Do not do things for people they can do for themselves. Paternalism comes in a variety of forms. Resource, spiritual, knowledge, labor, managerial. That's really crucial. The greatest asset are the people themselves. We're seeing that in the hill right now. What a beautiful church is happening over there. And not one of us are doing it, they're doing it. Right? And we see that here. We don't need the self-righteous other person over here coming over here. No, we got to see the assets that God's already given each of our communities. So we identify and mobilize the capabilities, skills, and resources of the individual community. That's how we serve. We mobilize communities and enabling them and doing what we can in a way to, to come alongside at best. It was so fun uh, working at the Hill Church with BOH that day. Wasn't it? Those of you who did it, working alongside of each other, having a good time. So you have a bibliography. I hope that you'll go and look through race, racial empowerment. There's some stuff there. Here, here's the key to that one, though. 
since you've had a big dose of, of, of economic uh, reconciliation and empowerment, um, everything we just said, it takes some work, could be applied. But it does take some work. Let me give you a clue. What are we doing when we take pride in our race over the image of God? What are we doing? We're showing a poverty of image. We're showing a poverty. We are poor. We're looking for something that makes me feel powerful, worthy, whatever. And then with each of those racial identities comes a history, comes you know, place of origin that comes with those ethics of how they apply either the ethic of hopelessness or the ethic of hopefulness. And we have all types and forms of this. And you're going to end up, I would come up with the same kind of a lecture where I'd say, well, gosh, those Anglo-derived folk got some real mm, over-realized eschatology, maybe. Those, those Southern Hemisphere folks seem to have a lot of under-realized eschatology. And it's not always that simple. I know. Please don't you folks come at me. Well, what about this example? Okay, great. You just got rid of that right now. <laughs> but generally, you're going to see things like that in your racial issue. And it always comes back. This is what Martin Luther King did over and over and over again. He was brilliant. He kept bringing it back to the image of God. He kept bringing it back to the image of God. we got to start there to have racial reconciliation. That We are all one human people made in the image of God with great dignity and worth and value. Psalms 139 is a great passage to go to for racial reconciliation. Let's read this. And this time, bro, why don't you read it and let's put your name in it. And next time, let's put my name in it. And wow, do we learn something from that passage. That we were fearfully and carefully and minutially made. That we're hemmed in before and behind in the very identity of God. And therefore, we're going to have to peel down through our, I know I'm going to use a powerful word right now, profiling based on all kinds of ethics derived from, from, from origin and history and all that's intermingled in there. I hope you read some of the quotes that I took from a King uh, uh, lecture on uh, the other America given at Stanford University. And it really helps you appreciate the unique challenge that the African-American faces historically. Ironically, he did not preach that to the African-Americans for a good reason. He was African-American. He preached it to the white American. Because he was afraid if he preached it to the African-American, it would empower a minoritarianism and a victimization that was the very problem that they were, that they had been put into. But he needed to speak it to the white American to understand that there is white privilege, and there still is. By the way, there's black privilege too. There's privilege to being victimized, there's privilege to being oppressors, and they're all an identity that replaces the identity of God in my heart. We need the gospel first, and that's what's cool about this room right here. I, I venture to say, I didn't plan this little group the way it came out. I'll just be honest with you, right, Chip? <laughs> but we're going to just believe that I bet there's 
very few places in America that's had a conversation like we just had with the people sitting in the room this year. Very, very few. And I'm going to be interested to see if the gospel is big enough. I think it is. I was thinking, Lord, as I was driving over here, that um, of all the things in my lifetime, as I even remembered my days in Tickwood, I remembered my days in Buckhead. And I remember the days of debutante. I remember the days of going to the smorgasbord with Malcolm and Ann company. If there's anything, Lord, that we want to pray for this week, it's this big, big, fat elephant that's in our lives and culture. And I pray that you would show us a gospel that's so much bigger. Give us the heart of a Christ, of a God who is no respecter of persons, who can see one another as all the Imago Dei, restored to that by the gospel of hopefulness in Christ. Set those of us who are materially poor, who suffer from an under-realized or under-developed belief in the kingdom of God now, give them hope, give them a new ethic that appropriates itself to this kingdom now, the ethic of stewardship, etc. And Lord, give us those who are materially wealthy but emotionally and psychologically poor and righteously poor in terms of their own self-image. Give them the hope of the next life that ultimately their identity isn't in their achievement in this world and how their kids do at school, how we do at work, what kind of images we prop up around us to replace the true image in our homes, in our cars, in our degrees, in the ominous and horrible Egyptian-like bondage that that puts us into emotionally. Lord, we confess in this room that all of us, in many different ways, suffer from the bondage typified by Egypt in the Old Testament, a bondage that is hopeless and desperate and in need of the gospel. Come, Lord Jesus, now, even as not yet you will come. We pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. And God bless our food. Amen. The food is served. Go eat it. Yeah. <clears throat>